themselves over to contemplating, considering their validity, their truthfulness in our lives. Claims such as we heard from Jesus this morning in his invitation to come, that if we come, he will bring us rest. I wonder how often we stop and we think, well, is that being realized in my life? Am I coming to Christ in such a way that my life is filled with rest? Or perhaps you're in a similar stage of your Bible reading plans as I have been through the prophets in the Old Testament and constantly this theme and this idea that something better is coming. Well, I wonder whether we put that to the test. Has something better come? Is something still on the horizon that is better by far than what we know and what we experience? Or this evening, I want us to consider especially this this claim which will be familiar to us from Christmas time and various services and occasions and the claim which the angels make in Luke chapter 2. You'll know the scene, won't you, that the shepherds are there on the mountainside and angels appear to them. And the angels say this, Do not be afraid, for I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. It's informing them that something has happened. But here's the claim that because this child has been born, there will be great joy for all the people. The Messiah, the saviour has come. And that is good news. It's the same sort of claim that Isaiah the prophet made centuries before when he was anticipating Jesus' birth. He said with the same sort of enthusiasm in Isaiah chapter 9, a child is born, a son is given, one whose name will be wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Therefore, those people who have been walking in darkness will see a great light. Those who have been living in A land of deep darkness, on them a light will dawn. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. They rejoice before you as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder, when victory at last has been confirmed. And I want us to consider this evening weighing that claim. Is it possible for a baby to be born that will induce joy for all people. A child to come who can flip the mood of an entire nation. We understand, don't we, that when a child is born, it is a joyful moment. Actually, at Christmas time, At the start of the pandemic, way back in 2020, I became an uncle for the sixth time. I'm a father twice and I'm an uncle six times. And let me tell you that when this most recent child was born into my family, it was a time when joy was especially felt. My younger sister, pregnant for the first time, went along for her 20-week scan and was told that her baby had a pretty serious defect in his diaphragm. Um, so long ago now, I've forgotten the name of it, a diaphragmatic hernia. And we did the research and various um, specialist 
consultant uh, meetings came and went. And the very best news that she received with it was that there would be a 50-50 chance of the baby surviving. So obviously as a family we prayed, obviously as a church we prayed. And Christmas 2020 came, little Arthur was born straight into intensive care, various machines plugged in, pipes up his nose, drugs being pumped in. They had to wait eight days until an operation was done, but I can say gratefully that a year and a half later, little Arthur is still doing very well, that they were able to fix the hole and he's growing and he's healthy and he's the happiest out of all the kids, I can promise you that. You can understand then that that birth, that baby being born, was a time of great joy for us as a family. And that joy sort of overflows, I think, a little bit into other people's lives when they hear the story of his struggle, our fears that perhaps things wouldn't go as we would have them go, but that so far everything is going right. But still, it's a big claim, isn't it? That someone's baby is going to bring joy, not just to their family, and not just to a slightly wider circle who are in on the circumstances surrounding it, but joy to all people. Joy to an entire nation. Have you ever had that experience when someone is showing you photographs of their newly born baby? Maybe a, a proud grandparent here or a proud uncle. And it can be really boring, can't it? Can I confess that I'm a pretty broody man? Out of my wife and I, I am the one, if we visit someone who's had a baby, I'm the one most likely to make cooing noises and to want to cuddle and to carry on and, and to get involved and all that. But still, when people show me pictures of their little grandson or granddaughter or niece or nephew or even their own children, I can get bored pretty quickly. So how is it then that these angels, that Isaiah could make the claim that Jesus, the son of David, born in Bethlehem, could reach through millennia even and bring joy to our lives. And more than just joy in that abstract sense of, of, of sort of doing the math in our minds that what he has done will work out for our benefits, therefore, tick, yes, it's good news, I mean literally bringing joy into our lives when we are in the most desperate situations. When we would otherwise be filled with despair and desperation, how can Jesus make an impact for us? That's why we want to look at Paul and his letter to the Philippians. Because here is someone who doesn't just think about the joy that Christ can bring, here is someone who proves the joy that Christ can bring, proves the difference that Jesus can make in the bleakest of situations. Paul, we know, of course, was one of history's greatest advocates for the Christian faith. He gave himself over for sharing Jesus with those who didn't know. And you can see in this letter, which should be a letter that is filled with disappointment and despair, it is a letter that is filled rather with joy and thanksgiving. 
a little bit of background for this letter. Uh, many of you will know that it is one that is written in possibly the lowest point in Paul's entire life. He's in jail. He's in prison. And that really, at the time, was a horrible circumstance to find oneself in. Today, we can be pretty aggrieved, can't we, when governments impose rules and regulations on us which we feel are robbing us of our freedom and our rights. Back in the pandemic, how much fuss did we make when we were told the sorts of numbers we were allowed to gather in or the sorts of attire that we had to wear in certain situations? But Paul's arrest and his imprisonment really was a grisly experience. Not just having his freedoms, his liberties removed, but his life being at stake. Again, when we think of imprisonment today, we think of, yes, freedom removed, but in return, the state taking on the responsibility of looking after our basic needs. If you're imprisoned, then it's their responsibility to make sure that you're warm and watered and fed and that you have access to medical support and so on. But in Paul's day, in Paul's imprisonment, none of that was true. You were simply locked away, guarded, and totally dependent on the kindness of friends and family to make sure that you had the clothes that you needed, the meals that you needed, the medical support that you needed. In Paul's day, in order to be cared for in prison, people had to choose to associate with you. They had to choose to associate someone with someone who was guilty until proven innocent. In order for someone like Paul even to survive as far as the trial, he had to receive a lot of external love and kindness. So it's an awful situation. And therefore, it's a letter that you might expect to be pretty bleak. If it was pretty bleak, most of us would say, that is fair. Do you know what, Paul? Given where you are, given what you've gone through, given the unjust circumstances that see you locked up, you are well within your rights to have a good morn, to complain about the government to complain about those who have falsely accused you, to complain about those who have abdicated responsibility and therefore have seen your imprisonment go on longer than it should. You're well within your rights to have a good morn. But it's not that sort of letter. I don't, I don't know whether you've got that sense just from the passage that we read, but it's not that sort of letter at all. It is the sort of letter that like Luke 2 or Isaiah 9, is brimming with joy. Now as Christians, we can sometimes think that in order to give this sort of external appearance of joy, the solution really is to ignore our circumstances, act as if they aren't happening, speak as if they aren't important at all, and to just give platitudes about God's goodness and his kindness in our lives. But what's so remarkable about Paul's joy, and this is what we need to see this evening, is that he is open. He is honest about all the things that we would normally assume he'd grumble about, but he lists those 
as circumstances, arenas in which he can rejoice because specifically of Jesus. Let me read it to you again. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, being locked away, thrown into this sorry cell, has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result of the horrendous circumstances and situation that I find myself in, it has become clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of these very chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It's true, says Paul, that some folks are going around and they are preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry. Some others out of goodwill. Those some others do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. But the former, those out of envy and rivalry, they preach Christ, he says, out of selfish ambition. They're not sincere about it. They're supposing that they can stir up trouble for me, more trouble for me, while I'm locked away in my chains. What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, that Christ is preached. And because of that, I rejoice. Yes, says Paul, I will continue to rejoice for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ what has happened to me my circumstances my situation will turn out for my deliverance I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body by my release and being re-established as this famous apostle that folks will want to read my uh, letters in centuries and millennia to come. No, that Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die, Paul writes, is gain. There's three things at least in there, at least that I think would be fair grounds for a bit of a moan. Let's call them Paul's opportunity to grumble. The first, and we've covered it already, is that he's in prison. And that is not a fun situation to be in. That is not board and lodge taken care of, a weight off my shoulders just existing. That is hard. That in itself is a life-threatening situation to be in, number one. He's in prison. Number two, he's being slandered. Others are taking this opportunity to tread on him, to push him down, to stand on him while he's already on the ground to lift themselves up. Paul, in the sort of situation where he cannot respond to the attacks that are coming his way, Paul in the sort of situation where he can't clarify um, miscommunication that is going on perhaps is being used for other people to get ahead in their lives. By pushing him down, 
they're seeking to lift themselves up. He's in prison, he's being slandered, and perhaps most painful of all, this third opportunity to grumble, he doesn't know where it's all going to end. He genuinely doesn't know whether he's going to live or die. He knows that he's there for false reasons, but he doesn't know the political maneuverings that are going on in the background. He doesn't know whether he'll be set free to carry on his work establishing communities of Christ-following people around the known world or whether he will be sentenced to death. And you can imagine that is a genuinely agonizing situation to find yourself in, isn't it? To not know what tomorrow will bring. But here's what's so fascinating and so illuminating for us this evening that in each and every case, in prison, being slandered, not knowing what tomorrow will bring, he doesn't just say, well, there are others who have it worse. You know? There are others whose fate has been sealed. They've been sentenced to death and they will be executed within a few days. He doesn't say that. It's the sort of thing we would say. Well... Others have it worse. There's always somebody worse off than me. He doesn't just say, well, there's a silver lining to it all. I'm sure I'll learn patience through my suffering. He says that sort of thing elsewhere, but it's not where he says his joy comes from. He says that he actually rejoices because in these very things, in these dark things, light is shining. Because in each and every one of those objectively bad situations, he can see that there is good news and that brings him joy. He sees Christ on display in all of his struggles. He explains it, doesn't he? He says, here I am in jail, but guess what? The jailers are being saved. Those people who have been given responsibility to make sure that I'm locked away, they have come to see the truth about Jesus. More than that, the church is now encouraged, two for one. Brothers and sisters are all the more bold to speak up for Christ because they can see that even in their imprisonment, Christ might be proclaimed. And even if my reputation is being pushed down by others who want to build themselves up, he says, do you know what? Here is Christ on display. Christ is proclaimed. Jesus is being lifted up higher even than them. Perhaps for the first time ever in the circumstances where Jesus is being proclaimed. And lastly and breathtakingly, he can stare down the uncertainty that surrounds his own life and he can say, I can rejoice because whether I live or whether I die, it makes no odds because Christ, Christ will be exalted. See, here is someone who isn't just speaking about joy and speaking about Jesus. Here is someone who is living it proving it that Christ has come and that Christ's coming is good news that can bring joy to all people. Even in his prison cell, even in his land which is overshadowed by death, the Messiah coming really can cause great joy. 
the claim of the scriptures seems to, in Paul's life at least, to have lived up to the hype. How, how is that the case then? How is it that Paul in these circumstances doesn't just have to sort of push the badness out of his mind and say, it's all irrelevant, Christ is Lord. How can he in those, embracing those situations and struggles say, and yes, this is good, I rejoice. Well, surely it's because his whole conception of life and of existence, of purpose, has been changed and transformed by Christ. Christ, he says, will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. The light has come. The Saviour has arrived. The King is here. And that means Paul's significance has diminished incredibly, while in others has increased. Paul sees himself now, not as a be-all and end-all, but sees himself and his existence as an opportunity for someone else. I think that joy evades us in our lives because we've become so well trained, so well trained in looking to ourselves for everything. We're told that we can do anything that we put our minds to, that we can achieve whatever it is that we set our mind's eye on. We're constantly bombarded with the message that whatever you hope and dream and desire, you work hard enough and it can be yours. And we believe that lie and we end up disappointed. Of course, some of us will be lucky. Some of us will finish up top of the pack. Some of us will work harder than the person next to us and we will achieve certain things. But ultimately, our entire life is out of our hands, isn't it? The last 24 months have proven to that proven that to us in the most starkest realist ways life is out of our hands joy evades us because we so often believe the lie that we are masters of our own destiny moreover there's something perpetually disappointing about life when we look outside of ourselves and look to one another when we think that okay i might not be up to it but at least i have these folks around me. Because with all the best will in the world, and I'm sure you are a great bunch, we're all just as flawed and fragile as the next, aren't we? So we might say, as we've tested positive, and we have to stay indoors, have to anymore, recommended of course, isn't it? But we'll say, well, doesn't, that doesn't matter so much because... My son can bring me my milk and bread and that'll, you know, tide me over and we'll all be okay. But then what happens? Well, close contact. They're a positive case and they can't go out and fetch it. That when we see ourselves as failures and we put the pressure or the expectation on someone else, they're just as likely to let us down too. But those angels declare to us, don't they? Here at last 
in David's town is the one who is truly dependable, the one who is truly able, the one who is so worth entirely reorientating our lives around that all the meaning that we might search for, all the purpose, the security, the acceptance which we look for within, which we look for around us, ultimately escapes us unless it is found in Jesus. And when we find it in Jesus, he brings it all and more and it can never be taken away. How can Paul look in his circumstances and say, I rejoice because he's understood that it's not from Paul and it's not for Paul. And we need to see that for ourselves this evening if we want to have joy that when the Messiah comes, it's not from us and it's not for us. Christ be honoured, whether in life or death through our bodies. A little later in the letter, Paul says that this isn't just something that's supposed to be peculiar to him. He, He says, this isn't just me being a special Christian. This should be your attitude too. In all circumstances, you guys should be able to rejoice as well. How? By having that same attitude as Paul, wanting to fix our eyes on Jesus. In the letter to the Philippian church, Paul lists all the sorts of things that outside of Jesus he might be able to cling to and lay claim to, to feel pretty good about himself. All his achievements, all of his um, opportunities for pride. But now he says all of those are revealed to be utter garbage compared to what I have in Jesus. He says his joy is because Jesus has reached out and grabbed him with both hands and will not let him go. And Paul said, you would do well to do likewise. Christ has come. There is no turning back. The horse has bolted. The one who made everything has become nothing. The one who is God gave it all up and descended into our bleakest and most broken circumstances. He came, he said, to show us the truth, the truth that we had turned our back on. He came, he said, to restore us, to reconcile us. He came to make it so that joy could not only survive in our lives and in our world, but thrive when we had only ever really experienced sorrow. Joy is for all people. It really is because Christ is so certain. Christ is so dependable. I'm sure that there are folks in this very room who, whose lives and experience would bear witness to that in exactly the same way to Paul. Can we rejoice even when? It's been put to the test, hasn't it? 
even when we are afraid, even when we are sick, even when we lose loved ones and liberty, even when lockdowns linger, even when offices close their doors for good and jobs are lost, can we rejoice even then? What about when relationships that we thought meant everything to us are undone by selfishness? Our own selfishness or the selfish of the other party. Can we rejoice even then? Claim of the scriptures, the experience of Paul, the experience of some of those in this room this evening is that yes, because a baby in David's town has come and offers us a different way of living, of reorientating our lives, something that is firm, something that is secure, because he has come and offers us to live in a world in which we are no longer king, or those flimsy, frail folks around us are no longer king, but the truly dependable, truly worthy one is king, that yes, we can have joy. You know, joy isn't about having our sorrow erased. Sometimes I think that's a mistake we can make. Joy doesn't ignore our sorrow. Joy is supposed to permeate our sorrow. Joy can exist before our sad circumstances. And if our joy is based and rooted and grounded in Christ, it will exist beyond those circumstances. That is how Paul, writing a letter that should be filled with grumbling and mourning, can say, I rejoice. We've had some nice weather the last few days, haven't we? Sort of weather where I'm stretched out, enjoying myself on the patio furniture and just thinking, long may it continue. Oh boy, cut the lawn, get a bit of a sweat on, grab a cold drink and just relax. And well, I hope it does last. I hope this is the sort of summer that we're in for. But you know what? As long as the summer may go on, it, it won't last, will it? If that is my source of joy, it can be taken away in the instant with rain, clouds and storms. Maybe you're thinking about summer holidays. We've been chatting about that recently in my household. I need to get on and order a passport. Three of us don't have passports, so we're not going to go anywhere unless that's sorted. But we hope, don't we, that we will have a good time on the holiday. That we'll enjoy ourselves. And why not? This isn't, a, this isn't a word against enjoying our circumstances. But, as the saying goes, all good things must come to an end. Except Christ. Christ is that one thing that will never be taken away. The truth, the claim that Christ brings joy really rests on the fact that everything that we have in him can never be removed. So, Paul, throw me in prison. Besmirch my good name. Take my life from me. The light that I have, the hope that I have, the life, the existence that I have in Christ, you cannot lay a finger on that. Brothers and sisters, that is the attitude 
That is the expectation we should carry with us into the week, which will bring us disappointment, will bring us sorrow, will bring us struggles, but will not be able to lay a finger on the king of our lives. 